Okay, so this will be my third podcast. Um, this will be my second one about um, suicide prevention. And uh, the last one I did, um, I, I got a lot of feedback on it. And so I wanted to cover some of those things that I talked about with those that had some comments. And then uh, go into some things that we can do as loved ones to help those who may or may not be, uh, we don't know sometimes, struggling with suicidal thoughts. So one of the questions that I had was, uh, one of the comments that I had was that we're playing God when we take our own life. Um, They didn't, uh, the, uh, the person I talked to didn't say that it was a sin or anything like that necessarily. Uh, to take a life. Um, we all know that that um, murder is a sin. We should take someone else's life. They want their life. They should be able to have it. But there's that uh, question that we have when it comes to taking your own life. Because is it my choice to make? Is it my life to decide when it should end? So, um, the discussion was that uh, are we playing God when we do something that ends our life prematurely? And so I want to go into that a little bit. Um, How do we determine when God's timing is for our life to end? Is it, it, you know, as the body's natural progression, when the body ceases, uh, when the the heart stops, when the breath um, ceases? Uh, when the brain activity stops, you know, what is it? How do we determine when life is over, when we can let go and let that person go? Um, you know, we've all heard stories of somebody that had, that was brain dead, uh, but they were kept alive on a machine. Um, at some point, the family has to make that choice. We did that with my dad. Um, my biological father... Um, his uh, pancreas had burst and the poisons had filled his body cavities. His, his, uh, his internal organs were covered with, with this poison and he was dying. And so they put him into a chemically induced coma to ease his pain, to stop his suffering. And um, they pretty much said there was nothing that they could do for him. So we had to make the choice to pull the plug, I guess is the, the term that we use. Well, you know, technically, my dad could have continued to live longer than that, so we made a choice to end his life before his body gave out with the help of uh, medical equipment. So is that the standard we go by, is the medical equipment, if you can keep the body alive with medical equipment, or with if the body is kept alive with medical equipment alone, you know, are we going beyond God's plan? So, um, you know, that opens up a whole Pandora's box of questions. Um, you know, is a person brain dead? Are they in a coma? Do they have a terminal illness? Um, if the body's natural termination is the reflection of God's timing, don't we play God every day? I mean, I take meds to live longer. I take a blood pressure medication. Um, uh, not me personally, but some people eat right. 
in order and exercise in order to live longer. <clears throat> They'll have surgery when they need surgery. Uh, we put on our seat belts all to extend that natural progression of life. You know, we do things to try to extend our lives, right? Um, you know, we look at, um, you know, are eggs good for us? Is butter good for us? Uh, is too much salt, you know, okay? Can I have chocolate? Can I drink Diet Coke? You know, what's going to kill me? Um, can I smoke? Can I drink al alcohol? Uh, we do all of these things or don't do some of these things in order to manipulate the timing of the natural termination of our bodies. You know, it used to be if somebody got an infection, they would die. Um, now we have medications. God has given the doctors wisdom in order to keep us alive longer. So is, is that um, the standard that we go by? Is if it's available, we use it. If it's not available, so so then the question goes, um, or, or the I, I guess the the prevailing thought is, if we can do something to extend our life, it's okay to play God. But if we shorten our lives through action or inaction, that's wrong. So what is it about life on Earth? that we view as more precious than eternity in heaven. Do we really believe that God is on his throne? He's looking down in disapproval if we do something that hastens our reuniting with him or lessens our earthly travails? I don't think so. I think that we have a warped sense of life, sense of eternity. If we really believe that there is life after death, what is so important about avoiding death for so long? And I'm not saying that um, that we should all be suicidal or that we should all jump off a cliff together or anything like that. I'm just saying that we have a preoccupation with extending life on earth as though that is the goal of life, uh, just to live longer. And if that life that we're living longer, we're suffering the whole time, what is the purpose? Um, it reminds me of the story, um, I think it was King Hezekiah in the Old Testament was, um, I, mean, I may be wrong about the name of the king, but um, uh, he was told by God that he was going to die, and he turned his face to the wall and pleaded for God to give him more years, and God granted him 15 more years. So. Um, you know, God had said, your time is, is coming up, you're going to die. And for some reason, he would rather stay on earth and be king than go to heaven. So he had 15 more years. Well, if you read the scripture, um, his 15 years that he spent on earth after that time were miserable. His sons tried to kill him, and, and there was war, and, and it was just miserable. And... Um, was that worth it? Was it worth it to him for those 15 years of suffering um, just to be on this earth a little bit longer and avoid God, you know, of all things? So, anyway, that was one of the um, discussions that I had after the, the last podcast. And I wanted to share that with you and, and think about that. What is it about life on this planet that we are so focused on extending and if we extend it with medication or extend it with um, 
medical treatment or with healthy habits. Um, we see that as a good thing, and if we do something that shortens our life on this earth, we see that as a bad thing. Is that is that really true? Why is it that way? Okay, so um, I think I said this in the last podcast, and I want to go into greater detail. There are two things that we need to do to help somebody uh, avoid suicide. Uh, and even though I am a proponent of people being allowed to make their own choice, and I think that it should be uh, discussed openly and dealt with and talked to with a therapist and with a caseworker to decide if this is really what the person wants to do, but honor that person's request if they really, really want to go through with it instead of having them run off into the woods somewhere and put a gun to their head. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely opposed to that. Um, so um, I'm, I am for uh, someone being able to choose to end their own life for whatever reason as long as they've had a chance to, to deal with some things. And, and if you listen to the last podcast, you'll know all of the points that I make on that. I don't want you to you know, get too excited about what I just said here because I haven't gone into detail. And uh, I would encourage you, if you haven't listened to the last podcast, listen to that to, to know why I feel that way. Um, but if we're dealing with somebody in our family that or friends that is uh, has suicidal thoughts, I want to share with you ways that you can help and not hurt. Uh, so there are two things, two aspects of suicide prevention that I teach and I preach and I believe in with my um, to, the, to the core of my being. The first one is to buy time. Uh, now this I was taught. I was taught to uh, with suicide prevention and um, working at the mental health clinic and and dealing with those that have mood disorders, things like that. Um, we had classes and we were taught, and you know, I've got a master's degree in psychology and counseling, and and um, you know, I'm not saying that I'm a, I'm an expert in all of this, but um, it is something that I feel like I have learned quite a bit over the years. I used to feel like many of you do that um, you know, suicide is a selfish thing, and we need to shame people so that they don't think about it, they don't talk about it, and what happens is they don't talk about it, so they try to deal with it on their own, and that doesn't end too well, and then we're shocked, and we wonder how this could have happened, and what we could have done differently, and we feel guilty, and they're dead, so um, anyway, I don't want to go back into the last podcast, uh, the first thing is buying time, uh, if someone suffers from depression or suicidal thoughts, their life is like a roller coaster. There are ups and downs constantly. And I want you to picture being on a roller coaster. The ups come slow, like the click, click, click of the roller coaster as it climbs the steep hill, and then bam, in a second, you're headed down with no warning. Sometimes there's no trigger or even reason um, that you have depression. It, it doesn't always you know, sometimes it's just a chemical imbalance. Sometimes there's there's not um, something. Uh, we all have things to be sad about, but they're they're not always the focus. When you're on that upward climb, 
you still have those sad things going on in your life, but they're not making you feel suicidal. When you're depressed and you think about those things, then, then you're dealing with something entirely different and, um, and you're on that downward spiral. Uh, the only difference between real life and that roller coaster is that the down part of the roller coaster is the fun part. It is not in real life. When I am down, I tell myself that it will not last. Yeah, I got a master's degree. This is one thing I learned. Um, it's, a, it's a chemical imbalance. The chemicals will become exhausted at some point, and I'll feel better even about the, if the same situations that I had when I was depressed. Now, I'm not saying that situations don't throw you into a depression or throw you into suicidal thoughts. Uh, they can't. But probably that person was already feeling depressed before that situation reared its ugly head um, and they felt like they had a grasp on life even in that depressive state until something happened. But I know, I tell myself that it will not last. So I buy myself time. Um, I, I convince myself that if I just hold on, the, the good feelings will come back and I'll be able to cope with the things that I'm dealing with. I'll feel that click, click, click as I'm heading upwards. Um, so don't exit the ride. You know, don't, don't commit suicide when things are going to be better if you just hold it out. Just, just wait a little bit. And I know that's easy to say, and a lot of people think it, thinks it's that simple. It's not. Um, but that does help. That's a coping mechanism that we use to buy time. If you know that the neurotransmitters that are causing the depression or the suicidal thoughts will wear off, that can be very helpful in buying time until it passes. Buying time is crisis management. When a person gets in crisis and they are seriously thinking about self-harm or suicide, um, buying them time helps to get helps to bridge that gap and get them to delay that impulse, allows them to avoid an emotional decision, but it does nothing to alleviate future encounters with suicidal ideation. Those are going to happen. I have accepted the fact that I probably always, the rest of my life, will deal with suicidal thoughts at some point. I have to learn cope with that. I have to learn to deal with that. I do well talking about it and that really helps me. I know to buy time and that really helps me. I focus on whatever hope I can draw up and that helps me. Now, uh, buying time does a really good positive thing for the, for the individual. It strengthens their faith that they now have the ability to cope and hold out and deal with that chemical imbalance until it goes. Um, and that's a good thing. That's empowering. But triggers still exist. The suicidal thoughts will most likely return and they will require crisis management once again. Either the individual becomes stronger, like I just mentioned, in their ability to cope, or they'll become tired of the game. They'll become tired of having to go through crisis management again. Um, I've, I've experienced both, and it's really frightening 
to get to that point where you grow tired of crisis prevention because you become numb to the thoughts of suicide. You become where it's just a matter of fact that you're going to fall through at some point. You give up fighting. There's no emotion, just determination. I've been there. Um, there was a day where I came home from work. I found the garden hose. Um, I got the duct tape. I was going to run the garden hose from the exhaust pipe into the window like I've seen in the movies. And I was going to sit in the driveway inhaling exhaust until I passed out and died. Well, me, being the academic that I am, I looked it up online and found out that the car has to be older than 1973 or something like that. And I had a 2003 Dodge Ram, so um, it wasn't going to work. It was just going to make me very uncomfortable. So I changed my mind about that, and that bought me time to the point where I got through that. Um, <clears throat> so it is scary when the person gets to that matter-of-fact point where there's no emotion anymore. It's good that somebody is very emotional when they're suicidal because that means they care about living. Uh, tears mean that somebody cares about what it is that they're dealing with. Um, and I'm going to talk about that person's mental state and helping them to feel more comfortable in dealing with it uh, later on in this podcast. Uh, we don't want someone to continue on the roller coaster. Um, crisis prevention after crisis prevention after crisis prevention. Even though that may make them stronger and learn, know that they can cope, um, they may become numb to it. And that, I think, is a dangerous area to be. So that's why I have added the second aspect of suicide prevention, which I consider long-term protection. I'm going to try to go through this without tearing up and crying. You may hear it in my voice, but this is very emotional for me. Um, so I'm going to talk about an example of it first. Um, I call this ease their pain. So you may remember the line, ease his pain from the field of dreams. Great movie. The character played by Kevin Costner hears a voice saying this and some other things, but this is what we're going to focus on to him. And he tries to obey that instruction. Ease his pain is what he hears. So first he thinks it refers to shoeless Joe Jackson, who was banned from baseball in 1919. There was a big scandal for the White Sox. Um, Ray, played by Kevin Costner, had had a rocky relationship with his father, who was an avid baseball fan, who loved shoeless Joe Jackson. Before leaving home, um, with this bitter attitude between him and his father, he told his dad that he could never respect someone whose hero was a criminal. So Ray feels that easing, because Shoeless Joe Jackson showed up at this field, I'm sure you've seen the movie, I don't have to fill you in on every detail, but Ray feels that easing Shoeless Joe's pain would maybe help him grow as a person by seeing past Joe's criminal behaviors. And I think that's a good point, good moral of that part of the story, but that's not the entire thing. But this is where he's at at the time. So he attempts to ease the pain of Shoeless Joe Jackson, who was banned from baseball. Well then, as the movie plays out, he thought it might be Terrence Mann, who was an author in the movie, 
played by James Earl Jones, you know, Darth Vader or Mufasa, depending on how old you are. Uh, so he contacts Man. They attend a ball game together, uh, which leads them both to Archie Graham. They saw a vision on the scoreboard about Archie Graham, who played in one major league game and he never got to the plate. So that's his pain. So uh, Archie had died. They found out that Archie had died 16 years prior. And on their way back, they pick up a hitchhiker who says, "Hey, I'm Archie Graham." So this is the ghost of the young Archie, who was the age of the baseball player who made it to one major league game and never got to bat. So they go back to Iowa, where they all play baseball, and he's thinking, "Hey, I've eased Shoeless Joe's." pain, I've eased Archie Graham's pain, I've eased Terrence Mann's pain, you know, I'm doing what I was told to do. Well, at the end, he meets the catcher, and the catcher takes off his catcher's mask, and it's his father, who he never made amends with. So he realizes that the voice was telling him to ease his father's pain, and of course this eases his as well, but he makes amends in a way with his father. Um, and so the point I'm trying to make is that he sought to ease the pain of all of those around him. And when he did that, he realized that it was the pain of his loved one that he needed most to ease. And I suggest that you ease the pain of everyone around you. People are suffering everywhere. And it's good for us. Uh, we're all in the same boat. We just have different needs and we all suffer different things. But our, our, we should have our hearts and our minds open to the pain of others and try to ease their pain. Um, but getting back to the podcast, we want to ease the pain of those suicidal people that are our loved ones. Suicidal people are suffering. Technically, we're all suffering. Be careful not to judge someone's level of suffering. Now, um, as an example, my mom had a very low threshold for pain. My dad, on the other hand, he could have accidentally, which is the only way to do it, driven a nail through the bone in your forearm, and his pain level would be at a four. My mother, however, she could get a paper cut, and if the doctor asked her to rate her pain, it would be an 11. And uh, um, that was how she, she just did not like pain. She didn't like to be uncomfortable. Um, don't judge someone else's pain by your threshold for pain. You don't know when someone else is in pain. Uh, right now, uh, I'm, I'm dealing with some ankle pain. I don't know where it came from, but sometimes when I take some steps on that ankle, the pain is excruciating to me. It may not be to you, and I know it doesn't hurt you when I step, but if you had the same thing, it may not bother you as much, but it, it really bothers me. It hurts. I try not to grimace in pain. I try not to walk abnormally because I don't want to draw attention to myself. We do that with emotional pain, too. We try to hide it. And those with high levels of empathy may notice my limp, they may notice my strained face, and they may show compassion for the pain in my ankle. But it takes great concern for others to recognize emotional pain. We really need to be told 
How many times have we heard from loved ones after a suicide, they say something like, I just didn't realize how much they were suffering. Um, and then they feel guilty. You know, how could I not have known? The suicidal person is not the selfish one. They were strugg struggling. And we did not allow them to feel comfortable enough to share that pain with us. Maybe we get angry when they bring up feelings of suicide. Uh, and they don't feel comfortable then bringing it up. Maybe we try to shame them. Maybe we tell them they're going to hell if they commit suicide. Maybe they tried sharing the things that they're suffering with and we dismissed it because it's not in our pain threshold. Post-suicide, when we learn the reason someone was struggling, we all of a sudden think of solutions for those problems, right? Well, I could have helped them with that if I knew that they needed that. You know, well, if they had just gone to therapy or I should have told them how much I love them. You know, we think of these things too late. Uh, we should be thinking of those things now. Uh, we don't know if a loved one of ours is contemplating suicide. We should know if they're suffering. And if we talk about their suffering, we show them compassion, we might find out that they're having suicidal thoughts, especially if we're open to that communication. <coughs> My wife is very understanding. Um, when uh, I, or one of our other family members, talks about their suicidal thoughts. She tells me all the time, she says, I understand that you're suffering and I don't want to, you to have to continue to suffer. I, I don't want to lose you um, and I wish that there was something that we could do to solve this. She's, she's always looking for ways to either problem solve or at least to show me that she understands my suffering and she's here for me, which is exactly what you need to do. You may not know if someone's suffering. So here's a clue, they are. You may not know if someone is suicidal. Let people know that it's okay to feel that way and that you're available to talk. No shame, no judgment, just like you would make someone feel cared for who has an ankle injury. Hey, where do you hurt? How can I help? How can I take you to the doctor? Can I get you some medication? If we can't problem solve, at least we can comfort. So these two things, crisis prevention, which is buying that person time. You know, hey, let's make some plans for the future. Let's look forward to something together. Um, realize that you're gonna feel better at some point and I'll be here to suffer with you until you feel better. Great crisis management. But after that, or before that actually, ease their pain. If someone around you is suffering, do what you can to ease their suffering. Try to ease their pain. If you can do that, you take away a lot of those thoughts. And if you can't take away those thoughts, you at least have someone that they can go to, you are someone that they can go to, to talk about it and to help them cope with those thoughts. That's all I got for you today. If you have any comments or questions, 
if you disagree with something I said or I want to make a comment about something you agree with with what I said, uh, feel free to send me a message. Uh, you could email me at gary.legacylife at gmail.com. And um, if, if there's something you want to talk about, something you want me to read on, on the podcast, just let me know. Um, I'd be happy to uh, talk to you um, more about any questions you might have if you, if you or someone you know is uh, struggling with suicidal thoughts and you want someone to talk to, if you have a question, uh, feel free to ask me. Um, suicide hotlines, I think they're a great idea. Um, <clears throat> I always warn people, be careful of those because they are not the non-judgmental um, hotline that you think that they are. If they do think that you are serious, they'll send someone to you. They'll look you up, send someone to your house. Um, so be careful um, with that. I, I want you to feel safe when you open up and they don't always make you feel safe. But if you want somebody to talk to, if you want somebody to understand what you're saying and, and, and just help you work through some, some things, um, call them. Give them a call and, and talk to them. If, if they can't help, find a therapist, open up to a family member. Uh, if you are the person someone is opening up to, open up. Allow them in. Allow them to say what they need to say without you making them feel small for doing so. That only perpetuates the problem. So, thanks for listening. Um, it's been another great half hour, uh, at least on my end. I don't know how you liked it. But uh, anyway, um, until next time, thank you.